All right, well, welcome. So like John said, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Merry Christmas. I'm glad you could make it this morning. So if this is your first time here, just really thanks for coming. Really glad you're here. So, um, so here at River City, we've been preaching through, uh, uh, preaching, making our way of preaching through our Advent series, and, uh, which is about peace. So that's the big idea in this series. It's about peace. So, so a couple weeks ago, Brandon preached about uh, peace with God. And then he preached about inner peace, which is about, like, which he talked about being freed from uh, worry and anxiety. And then this week is about peace with others. Peace with others. So in light of that, the big idea this week is the gospel shows us how to be at peace with others. The gospel shows us how to be at peace with others. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to be reading a true story from a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, and this is, just a, this is a little lengthy, so thanks in advance for listening. So. so he says, When I first met Brian and Julie, they wanted to meet with me to discuss some very significant and jarring turbulence in their marriage. The surface reasons for the turbulence were readily apparent. Julie had recently discovered that Brian had been unfaithful. Although Julie had initially been willing to seek joint counseling, her subsequent actions had convinced Brian that there was no actual hope of repairing the damage he had done. Sensing that there had to be something deeper going on, I continued to ask further questions over our next few times together. Brian was clearly struggling with feelings of tremendous guilt. He admitted to me that what he had done was horrible and sinful in God's eyes. After several lengthy discussions, it seemed evident that Brian had truly repented, not only of his actions, but also in his heart for what he had done. He wasn't faking or simply sorry for getting caught. This was a man who seemed truly broken and repentant. I then opened the Bible to show him God's promises of forgiveness. When Brian learned that God had forgiven him, it was obvious that a tremendous weight was lifted from his shoulders. Sensing this, I then asked if he would also like to be forgiven by Julie. To my surprise, he said no. Thinking he might have misunderstood my question, I repeated it, but he gave the same answer. And when I asked him why, he said, I have confessed various things to Julie over the past few years in our marriage, and she had... She has always said that she forgives me, but I don't know what that means to her. Because even when I really try to change my ways, she consistently reminds me of my past wrongs. When she doesn't get her way or we get into an argument, she reminds me of something I did months or years earlier. If she holds those wrongs against me, there's no way she'll hold this one. There's no way that she'll not hold this one against me. I don't think I can live with a person keeps a record of my wrongs and holds them against me like that. I looked at Julie and asked her if this was the case. After thinking for a moment, she admitted that it was. I know it's probably not right to keep throwing things back in his face, she said, but I just can't forget all the things that he's done to have hurt me over the years. For the next few minutes, I explained how the Bible describes forgiveness in the gospel. I showed Brian and Julie that when God forgives us, he promises to not keep a record of our sins and hold it against us. 
I then explained that God wants us to forgive each other in the same way and promises to give us the power to do so. When I ended my explanation, both Brian and Julie were deep in thought. In response to further questions, Brian again confessed what he had done was wrong. And again, he said that he was deeply sorry for hurting Julie so tremendously. He also said that he'd be willing to meet regularly with, regularly with a Christian counselor to foster his own growth in the gospel. Finally, he turned to Julie and said, Julie, will you please forgive me and give our marriage another chance? When I looked at Julie, it was obvious that she was involved in a tremendous internal struggle. I silently prayed that God would give her grace to understand the forgiveness of the gospel. Finally, she said with careful but sober conviction, I can now see that I have never truly forgiven Brian in God's way. Instead, I have brooded over his wrongs and brought them up any time I wanted to hurt him or win an argument. If God were to forgive me in the way that I have forgiven Brian, I would be in a lot of trouble. Then turning to Brian, she said, Brian, I choose to forgive you, and with God's help, I promise never to use this against you in the future. Brian and Julie still had a great deal of work to do before their marriage could be fully healed, but the promise of forgiveness opened the way for them to solve their other problems in their marriage and to eventually be reconciled in a meaningful way. And that story there, like, that's about marriage. But the principles of a story like that can apply to almost any situation in our lives where we experience a lack of peace with others. Like when your supervisor unfairly evaluates you in your annual performance review and now you're ineligible for a raise or a promotion. When your adult sibling makes choices that consistently makes your life hard and stressful. And on top of that, uh, they, blame, they blame you as the scapegoat for many of the poor choices that they've made in life. When it consistently feels like your parents put you as the adult child in the middle of their marital problems, and they consistently put you in a position where it's almost like you need to take sides. When a friend you've invested your, with your time and your energy and your heart, and then present, when, but like for one reason or another, when they're presented with a complicated situation, they don't give you the benefit of the doubt. Because the bottom line that is that in all of those situations, including the one with Brian and Julie, they all share the same commonalities of like, that are present when we have a lack of peace with others. And I'm not going to do a deep level of cultural analysis, like, but one thing that's fair to say is that in our culture, peace with others, that's just seen as good and desirable and even virtuous. Like, that's a good thing, peace with others. But, you know, if you look at, like, various marketing campaigns, or you're just a good friend and you listen to, like, um, the stories and you're at the heart of your friends and neighbors and coworkers, it's like, peace with, like, 
what you'll hear is that peace with others is just a, really a, a desire and a goal that we have in one way or another. Because right now, for example, like everyone in here can think of a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, your spouse, where there's a lack of peace in that relationship. And on a gut level, like we all know that like, that's just not how it's supposed to be. Like our culture says that peace with others is good and desirable. And that's, that's fair to say. But one thing I think is also fair to say is that even though peace with others tends to be a common goal and desire that we have, like there's no meaningful consensus about like what it looks like to, like, to forgive and how to get to that peace right there. And that's where the gospel comes into play because the gospel shows us how to have peace with others. Because from a Christian perspective, God doesn't just say, have peace with others. He shows us how, like how to get there. That's why that's the big idea this morning. The gospel shows us how to have peace with others. So this morning, so I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to read and explain a passage in the Bible that hits on this. And then I'm going to talk a little bit more in depth about one of the ways that um, the gospel shows us how to be peace, at peace with others. So let's pray. So God, um, yeah, I mean, weakness is a, good, is a good place to be when it comes to um, just interacting with you and um, thinking about you because, uh, yeah, so like I feel like a, a healthy sense of weakness like talking about this, and I think we all do right here. So, um, yeah, we pray that you will just really like have the gospel be good news like in our hearts and our minds. And I pray your spirit will just really empower that in all of us, like individually and collectively. So, and um, yeah, we just really need you for that, God. I do too. Yeah, amen. All right, so if you have your Bible, um, you can open, up to, open it up to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 4, so it'll eventually be up on the screen too. So it's not a long passage this morning, but I just want to share a little bit of background about Ephesians because we're since we're just kind of parachuting into the middle of this book right here for this sermon. So the book of Ephesians, that was actually a letter. So imagine if you wrote a letter to a group of people or a friend. Okay, this is what, this is what Ephesians is right here. So it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who he was kind of like a traveling evangelist and traveling church planter um, just about 2,000 years ago. So he wrote this letter about 30 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. And he wrote this letter to the church that was located in the city of Ephesus, hence it's called Ephesians, and that's in modern-day Turkey right now. So the church in Ephesus like, really respected Paul, and they eagerly listened to what he had to say to them. And when the church received this letter, it was likely read out loud to the whole church during their worship gathering, kind of like what I'm going to be doing in a minute here. And Paul's purpose... so. In, in a lot of ways, like Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it can like really be thought of as like there's two halves of it. There's the first half and the second half. And the first half of the letter just really tells the Ephesians about like who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And then the second half of the letter just really focuses on like how the Ephesians are to live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. So like what is true and then like how do we live in light of that truth? Okay, so the verse that we're honing in on this morning is in the second half of that letter. So, so with that in mind, chapter 4, verse 32, Paul says, 
Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That was a short passage. So I'm going to close in prayer now. So So this is a short passage this morning, but this is really powerful when it comes to the gospel showing us how to have peace with others. So first of all, um, let's focus on the last part of that verse because that'll just really help us understand the first part of the first part. So when it says, just as in Christ, God forgave you, what that clearly implies is that we needed to be forgiven by God. So author David Platt, he's written the following, um, which has really helped me understand um, what this is all about, what this is like. So he writes the following here. He says, Azim, an Arab follower of Jesus and a friend of mine, recently told me how he was talking about the gospel with a taxi driver in his country. The taxi driver said that he hadn't done too many really bad things, so surely God wouldn't feel the need to punish him, and he didn't need to be forgiven. So Azim said to him, If I slapped you in the face, what would you do to me? And the taxi driver said, I would throw you out of my taxi. Azim continued, If I went up to a random guy on the street and slapped him in the face, what would he do to me? And the driver said, he would probably call his friends and beat you up. (laughs) Azim asked, what if I went up to a policeman and slapped him in the face? What would he do to me? The driver replied, you would get beat up for sure, and then you would be thrown in jail. Finally, Azim posed this question. What if I walked up to the king of this country and slapped him in the face? What would happen to me then? The driver looked at Azim and awkwardly laughed. He looked at Azim and said, You would die. Azim's point was that the penalty for sin is not determined by our magnitude of it. Instead, the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. If you sin against a log, you are not very guilty. On the other hand, if you sin against a man or a woman, then you are absolutely guilty. And if you sin against an infinitely holy and eternal God, you are infinitely guilty. And what that story is illustrating is that we are infinitely guilty because we have sinned against an infinite God, which is why we are in need of infinite forgiveness. And that's why there is infinite gravity in Paul's words in Ephesians 4.32 when he says, in Christ, God forgave you. Even though we deserve to be punished for our sin, Jesus was punished in our place. Even though he was without sin and didn't deserve to be punished, God was ultimately kind and compassionate towards us. And through putting our faith in Jesus, we are 
infinitely forgiven by our infinite God. In Christ, God forgave you. So that's the second part of the verse. And so let's just backtrack to the first part of the verse. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving others. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving others. Now, just as an aside, like we use the phrase gospel-centered here at River City. And just so you know, like that's not empty spiritual jargon that we use. Gospel-centered. Like whatever. Okay. No, no, like it's like that's not empty spiritual jargon. Like when we say gospel-centered, what we mean is if we want to know what to do or how to live, then we need to first understand the gospel. So in other words, we need to ask good questions like, who is God and what is he like? And then we reflect who he is and what he's like in how we live. So, And that's ultimately why Christians are called to be forgiving people. That's because we serve and follow a forgiving God. So a gospel-centered way of understanding forgiveness is to see that God is infinitely forgiving and therefore we have been infinitely forgiven. And because it's the desire of our heart to reflect who God is in our lives, that's why Christians are called to be characterized by forgiving others. And that's the same line of thinking that we see from Paul in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That's a gospel-centered understanding of forgiveness. So just think about it. Like if, if all that's true, that like there is a God and we have gone our way and not his way, and in that in in that economy, like we're that counts as rebellion towards God again, you know, because we've sinned against him, and there's just this infinite debt, and he's like for infinitely forgiven us. Like, um, if that's true, then what that means is that Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. And that's why Christians are called to be the most forgiving people in the world. And that's one of the big ways that the gospel shows us how to be at peace with others. Like, that's the how. Be at peace with others. Like, that's the how right there. So I'm going to drill down just a little bit about forgiveness because I think it's fair to say that it's easy to assume that we understand, you know, forgiveness. Forgiveness, it's like, well, I mean, there's a lot of contours to it, you know. Um, So I'm just going to briefly unpack three things that forgiveness isn't. And then I'm going to explain a little bit about what it is. So this will be up on the screen. So first, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. So I'm not Mr. Caveman who thinks that like feelings don't matter and like all this kind of stuff, like blah, blah, blah. Okay, not like that, okay? But like I do think it's fair to say that feelings come and feelings go. They just do. Um, Therefore, if forgiveness is going to meaningfully characterize who we are as followers of Jesus, then it's unwise for us to think about forgiveness as merely a feeling. Like, it's more than that, because forgiveness is ultimately a decision that we make. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Second, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. So... um, 
there's forgiveness and there's forgetting, okay? So forgetting is a passive process. That's passive. Forgetting is a passive process in which a situation or a person just fades from our memory, like merely with the passing of time, okay? So now conversely, um, forgiving is an active process. That's because like, it involves a conscious choice on our part and just a deliberate course of action. So to put it another way, so when God says, like, I will remember their sins no more. So if you don't, it's totally okay if you don't know this Bible reference. This isn't Bible trivia time, okay? But like, if, like Isaiah chapter 43, like God says, you know, this gets quoted often. It says, like, you know, God says, like, I will remember their sins no more, okay? That gets quoted a lot. So when God says, I will remember their sins no more, um, um, what that doesn't mean is that I mean, God isn't literally saying, God isn't saying that he literally can't remember our sins. Okay, so God remembering your sins no more is not the equivalence of losing your car keys somewhere and you just can't remember where they are, you know? It's like, no, no, it's like, no, when God says that he will remember our sins no more, what he means is he chooses not to. And not just begrudgingly, he joyfully chooses not to. When God forgives us, he chooses not to mention or recount or think about or hold our sins against us ever again. So similarly, when we forgive someone, it's vital for us to ask God to help us consciously decide not to inappropriately think or talk about whatever others have done to hurt us. And that may seem like a tall task, and it's certainly something that we need to ask God for, for his help with. But that kind of forgiveness is the gospel-centered pattern that we see in Ephesians 4 because our forgiveness of others is ultimately patterned after God's forgiveness of us. And third, uh, forgiveness is not excusing. Forgiveness is not excusing. So excusing ultimately says, that's okay, and just implies what you did wasn't actually a big deal, and it didn't actually hurt me. Like, I would argue, like, that's, peace, that's not peacemaking, that's peacefaking. So, but forgiveness is the opposite of excusing. Like, the very fact that forgiveness is needed indicates that what someone did actually was wrong, and it actually was a big deal. So a gospel-centered way of understanding forgiveness says, I know what this person did was wrong, and there's no excuse for it. But since God has forgiven me, then I can make the choice to forgive this person. And because, and don't miss this, because forgiveness deals honestly with sin like that, it then results in bringing a freedom that no, that no excusing, excusing or peace-faking can ever bring about. So those are some of the things, just some of the things that forgiveness isn't. So let's, just, let's talk about like what forgiveness is. So for a lot of reasons, um, we don't often dive into like the original biblical languages like um, the, the New Testament and Old Testament were written in. So 
um, here at River City, but, but like in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, to forgive someone means to release a person from liability, to suffer punishment, to, to let go, to release, to bestow favor freely and unconditionally. So in the New Testament, it often refers to debts that have been paid or canceled in full. So in these ways that we see that forgiveness in the Bible is undeserved and it cannot be earned or merited. In other words, forgiveness is often a costly choice. Forgiveness is often a costly choice. So Ken Sandy says the following in his book, The Peacemaker. This is good stuff. So he says, when someone sins, they create a debt, and someone must pay it. Most of that debt is owed to God. In his great mercy, he sent his son to pay that debt on the cross for all who would trust in him. But if someone sinned against you, part of their debt is also owed to you. That means that you have a choice to make. And you can either take payments on the debt or make payments. You can take or extract payments on a debt from others' sin in many ways by withholding forgiveness, by dwelling on the wrong, by being cold and aloof, by completely giving up on the relationship, by inflicting emotional pain, by gossiping, by lashing back, or by seeking revenge against the one who hurt you. These actions may provide a sense of pleasure for the moment, but they exact a high price from you in the long run. As someone once said, unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping others will die. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping others will die. Your other choice is to make payments on the debt and thereby release others from the penalties they deserve to pay. Sometimes God will enable you to do this in one easy payment. You decide to forgive, and by God's grace, the debt is quickly and fully canceled in your heart and mind. But when there has been a deep wrong, that debt it creates is not always paid at once. You may need to bear certain effects of the person's sin over a long period of time. That may involve fighting against painful memories, speaking gracious words when you really want to say something hurtful, working to tear down walls with vulnerability when you still don't feel enough trust with them, or even enduring the consequences of a material or physical injury that the other person is unable or unwilling to repair. Forgiveness can be extremely costly. But if you believe the gospel, then you have more than enough to make those payments. By going to the cross, Jesus has already paid off the ultimate debt for sin and established an account of abundant grace in your name. And as you draw on that grace through faith day by day, you will find that you have all you need to make the payments of forgiveness for those who have wronged you. Now, just so that there's not any confusion here, it's like... um, You can forgive someone individually on your own without telling that person, without filling them in that you've forgiven them. 
Like, sometimes forgiveness does need to be something that, like, is, like, yeah, you know, you need to talk to that person. Um, but, man, like, a lot of times it's just, like, in, forgiveness is an individual sport that we just need to own on our own. And when that kind of forgiveness takes up residence in our hearts and our minds and decision-making, that creates a culture of peace with others. It doesn't guarantee peace with others, but as much as it depends on you, you will live at peace with others if you approach forgiveness like that. And that includes peace with your uncharitable supervisor, peace with your backbiting coworkers, peace with your blame-shifting siblings, and peace with your challenging spouse. Maybe you are the challenging spouse. And when in a, in a local church, like here at River City, like when we're captivated by the gospel and people um, are freely and eagerly pursue forgiveness and peace with others, just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave them, that's the kind of environment where people flourish. It's the kind of environment where there's not just a theology of grace, but there's actually a culture of grace. And that's the kind of environment where people are free to grow in the gospel and make disciples in a real meaningful way. And this morning, I just need to know that like, um, like I'm not the one inviting you into this. Like God is the one who's inviting you into letting the gospel show you how to be at peace with others and to take the next step in forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. Like when we take communion here at River City, that's a symbolic way of responding to the invitation that Jesus is offering you through the gospel. And his invitation is ultimately for all of us to come to him. Like for some of you, um, coming to him simply means receiving him as your forgiver and your leader and to receive his offer of forgiveness through putting your life-changing faith in Jesus. And for some of you, coming to him means simply remembering Jesus and the magnitude of his forgiveness for you. And God is also inviting you to come to him and follow him in the way of pursuing peace with others and forgiveness of others. Like the bread, it symbolizes his body, and a drink, it, it symbolizes his blood. And those things are broken and shed for you. And that was costly what he did with his body and his blood. Forgiveness is costly. It's also beautiful. Like, and just pray before you take communion. Talk to him authentically and just don't make it a religious exercise that you just kind of go through the motions with. Like, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, I don't encourage you to hold off on taking communion because we don't want you to go through the motions of some kind of religious activity. But if you're ready to respond to him as your forgiver and as your leader and you want to surrender yourself to him, then, then surrender yourself to him and then go take communion. Like, from a gospel perspective, we can't be characterized as forgiving people until we've received and experienced the infinite forgiveness of, from our infinite fa Heavenly Father. So pray and talk to him about that before you take communion. There's two communion stations in the back. There's bread, there's juice. You take the bread, you dip it in the juice, and you take it that way. So the worship team is going to be playing four songs up here. So you can take communion whenever 
during those four songs, then we can feel ready. So let's pray. So God, um, we're really thankful that like um, you call us to peace with others, and we realize that like man, peace and forgiveness that's that's really costly. Like you, like it was costly with what you did on the cross, and we're just really thankful that you gave us that example. It wasn't just an example. You actually accomplished something, but man, it was an amazing example. And we're thankful that you call us to um, just to pattern our whole lives and um, after you, God. Yeah, and that's not something that we can do on our own power and our own decision-making, God, but we really need your empowerment and your spirit to just really enable us to, um, yeah, to just bring humble conviction, but also invitation, just an invitation, God, into following you in like those relationships that we don't have peace. Yeah, we just pray. For, yeah, we're just really thankful for you and we love you. Amen.